6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Well, we're going to explore the first chapter of the beloved epistle to the Philippians by Paul. And whenever we go into the Word of God, we want to go there armed with prayer. So let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this precious, precious epistle. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would open it to our lives and uh, help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our coming King as we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. Amen. Well, we are exploring one of the most beloved epistles of the entire group. But just to review a little bit from last time, uh, obviously the transition from Asia to Europe was the big one for Paul, in which he enters the city of Philippi. And uh, this also results in the first church of Europe. And uh, it's interesting that Luke's record of all of this in the book of Acts has a minuteness of detail that has few parallels in Luke's writings. And uh, he apparently... uh, joined Paul as Paul crossed over into Europe and was with them during his stay at Philippi. And he seems to have remained there for some time after Paul's departure. And we notice the first person plural is, is dropped at Philippi in Acts 17, but then resumed again in Acts 20 after a lapse of five or six years. So or six or seven years actually. And uh, so this makes the uh, uh, visit to Philippi among the most striking and most instructive passages in Luke's narrative in the book of Acts. That's why we reviewed it last time in such detail. We noticed there, there were three different kinds of converts there in this first church in Europe. And uh, the purple dealer, the gal that was a prophetess from uh, uh, Thyatira, a girl with a divining spirit, and the Roman jailer, of course. And very three different people. The first was an Asian, engaged in important and lucrative business, and well acquainted with the Old Testament. The girl with the divining spirit was quite different, a Greek, treated by law as just a mere chattel, and uh, it, uh, uh, she lost her, her gift of divination when she became a Christian in the first uh, European church. The Roman jailer, of course, uh, was very different than either of those, and uh, he had a, a government job, of course, and uh, so it's interesting that the history of Paul's connection with Philippi assumes a prominence quite out of proportion to the importance of the place itself. Uh, the persecutions which the apostle uh, endured there were more than usually severe and impressed themselves deeply on his memory because he alludes to it again and again in his other letters too. We note this with great fascination all the way through this particular letter. And uh, his deliverance uh, is without parallel in his history before and subsequent. And uh, his labors also surpass his earlier and later achievements. And it's the unwavering loyalty of the Philippian converts that's a constant source of comfort to Paul. And uh, he calls him his joyous crown, the brothers he longs for. 
And uh, uh, from them alone, he consents to receive gifts of money for the relief of his personal needs in chapter 4. And uh, so he writes in a language that's unclouded with the shadow of any displeasure or disappointment. It's all very, very positive. And so, uh, in, in fact, his uh, visit to Philippi ends abruptly in a storm of uh, persecution, and he left behind him a legacy of suffering to this newborn church that's going to be much the subject of his epistle here. And uh, the, uh, the afflictions of uh, the Macedonian Christians, and the Philippians particularly, are a subject again and again. Uh, he alludes to them many times in his other letters. And so Paul was a prisoner for four to five years, from A.D. 58 to about 63. Half that time was in Caesarea, and half that time was in Rome itself. And during this period, he wrote four letters. He wrote letters to the Philippians, of course, to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, and to Philemon, apparently all from Rome. And uh, their scholars differ a little bit, but there is seem to be some evidence that Philippians is distinctive from the other three and probably the earliest of the, that particular group. The things that make this letter distinctive is that it's affection, the intimacy, and it's provocatively free of any doctrinal uh, exhortations. There's no appeal uh, to his apostolic authority, and there, there are no commendations more, more lavish or affection deeper uh, in any of the other letters. There are no misgivings of their loyalty. There's no suspicions of false play. There's no reproaches of disorderly living. And there's no warnings against, there are no warnings against serious sins, in contrast to many of the other letters in which he's quite outspoken on each of those issues. And so we're going to jump in now with that little review from last time. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Well, we have Timothy right up here front. He's a convert very closely associated with Paul. Uh, his, Eunice, his mother, and also her mother, Lois, had uh, uh, introduced uh, Timothy to scriptures very early in his uh, life. And uh, two of Paul's letters are addressed to him where he calls him, My son in the faith. So Paul very much adopts this young man, and he becomes very much a protege of Paul. And uh, in six of Paul's epistles... Timothy is joined in the salutation of the epistle itself. Uh, he was with Paul on the second missionary journey. He was at Ephesus with him during the days of that strife. Uh, he was with him on his last journey to Jerusalem and with him on his first imprisonment. And then Paul sends for him out of his loneliness in his second imprisonment. Paul considered Timothy his son, his child, his comrade in the fight. Uh, Paul circumcised him so as not to offend his Jewish prejudices, um, uh, something that he would not have done, for example, with uh, a Gentile like Titus. He didn't do that to Titus because he, he was a Gentile. But he does do it with Timothy to avoid any discussion on that point. And uh, it's distinctive that neither Paul nor Timothy take any official title in this epistle. They're simply servants, the doulos, the bondslave of Jesus Christ. And uh, as bondslaves, they have renounced uh, all to serve the Lord as those who are alive from the dead. That's really the flavor of a doulos. And, uh, and no one can become a servant of Jesus Christ until they realize by nature that they are a slave to sin. And that's the acknowledgement we're going to see all through here. One can become a slave three ways. By conquest, in, like in Psalm 19. By birth, in Psalm 51. Or by debt, in Romans 6. One can gain freedom by earning it. 
by purchase or as a gift. However, there's only one that can pay sin's price on our behalf, and that's also going to be very emergent in this epistle. So it's Paul and Timothy, uh, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. All the saints as a whole are uh, greeted here. The elders and the deacons are specifically mentioned. And this is unusual. It implies a particular sense of obligation to the elders and deacons on the part of the apostles, probably in connection with the assembly's gifts of support. It's interesting that he singles them out in that way, and that implies a, uh, it's a, it's an uh, acknowledgement of their authority, if you will. Saints, by the way, just a term meaning set apart. Elders may or may not be official. Those possessing the qualifications listed in the epistles in Timothy and, and uh, Titus um, should be sought out to, before someone takes responsibilities in oversight in the house of God. And that's a whole separate study I call to your attention. In both Timothy and Titus, specific qualifications for elders are, are detailed there. And uh, to fail to acknowledge such would fail to be in subjection to the word of God. It's important that we uh, recognize those qualifications. But a true bishop or overseer would be the last person to insist upon obedience to him. He would rather lead by serving the saints and by the force of a godly example, clearly. At the same time, the qualifications for elders are very specific, and we need to be aware of that as we, if we ever uh, get into that issue. But then he also he deals with both the bishops and the deacons specifically here. Deacons are simply those who minister in temporal things, chosen for this purpose. The word actually means servant, not in the sense of a bondman, a doulos, but one acting voluntarily in response to the expressed desires of others is really all the word means. And, uh, but again, notice that to all. Uh, it's used significantly in this epistle uh, to bind all together into one, uh, one bundle of love. Um, you're refusing to recognize any incipient division among them. We're going to find that divisions among them is not an issue in this epistle. Very surprisingly, many of, other, many of the other epistles of Paul deal with the divisive issues, not here. And uh, so he continues, verse 2, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, of course, was the classic general Greek salutation, and peace, shalom, was that of the Hebrew. And so that's Paul, Paul really uh, manifesting both his Greek background and his Hebrew background in this very frequently used salutation that he uses. And he always links them together in that order. And that's God's order. True peace rests upon the work of the cross, evident of his uh, uh, precedent grace. Grace comes first, that gives us the peace. And so there's a, there's a great deal uh, embodied in the order and of Paul's salutation, and he uses it frequently in, in virtually all of his letters. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. What a, what a wonderful way to open the letter. I wish that someone uh, could say that about me. I'm afraid that any such remembrances about me would be a mixed bag at best. But he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. What a, what a, a direct compliment that is. It's also interesting that Paul's prayers always begin with thanksgiving. I thank my God. For what? For every remembrance of you. What a... Uh, the, the, the whole thing starts off with this warm intimacy. And uh, he continues, Always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy. Now that's a term that's going to characterize this epistle. With joy. 
It's the main theme of the letter, interestingly enough. Inner joy appears 16 times in these four brief chapters. And uh, he continues, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Fellowship is mentioned three times in this epistle. Our fellowship with God on the one hand, our fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and our fellowship with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. So he really includes the Godhead in in the fellowship here. And uh, fellowship in the gospel may be experienced in various ways, of course, by prayer, by participation in public testimony, and by furnishing the means to enable the laborer to go forth unhindered by perplexities and anxieties as to the necessary means to carry on his work. So uh, that's, in fact, part of what we aspire to in the Institute, according to the Institute, is to equip the saints to, to, to learn for themselves, not preaching doctrine so much as giving tools for them to study and come to their own conclusions. And so uh, that's the flavor here, too, making disciples and so on. Being confident of this very thing in verse 6, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, this is one of those assurances of security that we don't overlook. It's one of the three great passages on this whole issue of eternal security. Being confident of this very thing that he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And... uh, the other, that's the first of three. The, the other one that's a, a major, a major foundational passage is in John 10. It's my, actually one of my favorites, where Jesus himself says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Wow. Where, where are we? Right in his hand. And uh, my Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I love that. There are two hands involved. Two hands, and I'm in there, and I couldn't get out if I tried. In fact, if you can lose your salvation, I have a new name for God. Butterfingers. My security is in his hands. If it were in my hands, I would mess it up. But I'm grateful for the fact that I have a security that exceeds uh, anything that I might do. This is, this, that's precious. And then the other passage that you have to include if you're going to deal with this subject is the last few verses of Romans chapter 8. Let's take just 38 and 39, for, for where Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, those are all ranks of angels, incidentally, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. <laughs> anytime, anytime you're feeling down, all you have to do is turn to Romans chapter 8, start about verse 28, and just take it to the end. And you can't stay down. That is so such a tour de force. Uh, if, uh, uh, I virtually have it tabbed in my Bible, because I go there frequently to check the, that, uh, that Romans 28 especially. For we know that God, all, that all things work together for good to them that love God, who are them, or to them that are the called according to his purpose. The most three important words in that verse are the first three. And we know. Not suspect, not hope. No, we know. Anyway, moving on here. There are some other allusions to the security that are less formal. Uh, in Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Ooh, what a precious verse that is. Jeremiah 31, 3, even in the Old Testament. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. That's the kind of love God has. And... Uh, then, of course, 2 Corinthians 4 has several things here. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. 
cast down but not destroyed. Then he continues, verse 14 of chapter 4 there, 2 Corinthians. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. So we find that assurance is uh, foundational all through the scripture. And this assurance is also suggested by the very images that are applied to believers throughout the Bible. Trees that do not wither in Psalm 1. Cedars of Lebanon year to year applied to believers in Psalm 92. And the house built on a rock in Matthew 7. And Mount Zion that cannot be moved in Psalm 125. These are all allusions of believers that even the idioms there, the metaphors there, uh, 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 presume this security that we can enjoy. And Paul had no doubt as to the final outcome of every true believer. God finishes what he starts, is, is uh, Paul's point here. And uh, the question, of course, as we go here, has he begun a good work in you? How about that? Think about it. If so, he has saved you for a purpose. One of the things I'm fond of doing with a large audience, say, how many of you are saved? And of course, most of the, virtually all the hands go up. I say, why? What has he saved you for? There are some broad collective answers to, mag, you know, to, to glorify Christ and so forth. No, there's also a specific reason he saved you. And the great adventure in life is to discover what it is that he has called you to. And uh, that, that, uh, that's the great adventure of life, to, to find out specifically what he's calling you to. And that's the challenge. I suggest you commit to prayer and, and check it out. But anyway, he's not finished with any of us yet, by the way. He hasn't finished with any of us. Every one of us needs to raise the bar on a personal walk. And, and one of the things that will include, of course, is a more intensive commitment to systematically study the Word of God. And you may say, gee, I read it every day. That's devotional reading. I take that for granted. No, I'm talking about a serious study. And that's what we're doing right here. That's what I hope you're engaged with here. And I uh, hope you enjoy this. And uh, I love what Donald Gray Barnhouse says about this. this. He says, there's no Christian listening to my voice who will think as well of himself five years from now as he does this morning. <laughs> I, I, that got to me when I saw that. Anyway, moving on to verse 7 of Philippians 1. Even as meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. Wow, that's a mouthful. I, it, it is meet for me to think of you all. Again, Paul's address here is to all the believers. And, uh, and as, uh, all the way through verses 4 and 6 through 7 here. And literally, he's saying, all of you are participants with me of grace. Is really the flavor here. And there's no room for divisions here. There's no thought of divisions. He takes that for granted, that we're yoked together, we're pulling together. And... Uh, he continues, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. King James here a little bit, but okay. Uh, I long after you. That's longing. That's not tolerance. That's longing. Very different kind of a thing. Very active. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. In other words, we are to be fruitful. All of this has bears fruit. It's, uh, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and not, that, that not of yourselves. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. The word there in the Greek is actually poema, 
We are his poem. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Very familiar verses from Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. But it's interesting that we usually highlight that because it's by grace that we are saved. And praise God, not of works. It's a gift. Not of work, it's not of works. It's not of yourselves. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But there's more to it than that. Can you get to verse 10 there? For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus, unto good works. So if we are saved, there should be some fruit being born. And we are to be fruit bearers. And that's really what's all about, what the judgment seat of Christ, the Mima seat is all about, is the judgment of the works, the fruit bearing. And uh, so God wants productive children. That's a key point all the way through here. Let's move on. That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Pretty straightforward, but it has a strange word here. That ye may be sincere. Now you check that out, it's pretty strange. You know what that word really means? Without wax. It translates uh, helicrines, which is uh, sun-tested. And it's found pure when tested in sunlight, is what the word actually means. Well, where, does it, where does it come from? Well, it turns out that fine porcelain was greatly valued in that culture, but it was so fragile that it could only be fired with the greatest difficulty without being cracked. And unscrupulous dealers would fill any cracks with a pearly white wax that would pass without being readily detected. If it was held to the light, however, the wax appeared as a dark seam. And so sincere meant without wax. In other words, it's straight. It's, there's no hypocrisy. There's no, there's no uh, unscrupulous hiding here is what the, what the word actually carries here. And see, honest... Latin dealers mark their wares sinicera, without wax. In other words, it's a, a claim of quality. Uh, 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 it is what it purports to be, in other words. Well, moving on, verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Fruitfulness. Now, do you want to prosper in your walk? That's spelled out for you, by the way, in the very first psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So that's the way you want to prosper. There it is right in Psalm 1. So I invite you to double that up in your notes, and we'll move on. This whole idea of suffering, you can't appreciate the next few verses unless you put yourself in the shoes of the Philippian Christians. It had to be at least four years since they had seen Paul. They had heard rumors of the things that had happened to him, and they were very worried about him when they received this letter, is what I'm saying. And they hadn't seen him for at least four years. And news had reached Philippi that, from Rome that their fellow church member, Epaphroditus, had been sick. That's something else that was concerning him. The news bearer updated them on Paul also, but some time had since elapsed. They would be asking all kinds of questions. Before this letter arrived, here's what was on their mind. Was Paul still in chains? They didn't know. Was he sick? Had he already come to trial? They didn't know. Or had he been martyred even? They had no way to deal with these speculations. And you know how rumors are. But now, they had this letter from Paul. At least he was alive. How eagerly they must have read it. 
Can you imagine, though, when they read the first 11 lines here? With references, not about Paul, all about them. But I would that ye would understand, brethren, that the things which happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Wow. See, at least he was alive. At the time of writing of Philippians, he could have no confidence that he'd ever be free again. So Paul's the one under threat. And he's the, his focus is on them, not himself. Things had turned out very different for Paul than he would have planned, of course. He had carried the gospel to all parts of the world, Assyria, Crete, Asia Minor, the area that we know as Turkey, and, uh, and Greece. He planned to go west, to, even to Spain, after returning once more to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Instead, he found himself on trial for his life. He faced entirely false accusations leveled at him by his own people. There's no feeling like betrayal. Ooh. And he was nearly lynched by the religious mob and ended up in a Roman prison, having escaped flogging only by pleading his Roman citizenship. What a, what a trump card that was for him. And his whole case was a mockery of justice. Although Wright was on his side, he could not secure a hearing. He was the subject of unjust, unprovoked insults and shame, and it's all in Acts 23 and so on. Malicious misrepresentation in chapters 24 and uh, 25 of Acts. And then a deadly plot on his life. And he was kept in prison due to corrupt officials. And uh, then came the storm at sea and then the chains in Rome awaiting for two years the uncertain decision of an earthly king. For two years. He's in chains. In two years. Uh, why was he there? Well, to get a lot of Roman Praetorians saved, we'll find out. <laughs> So nevertheless, he's still imprisoned, still chained, still unheard, still uncertain in terms of what's coming. And he looks back and averts, what happened to me served to advance the gospel. <laughs> what a perspective he had. All this he regarded as serving Christ, serving the purpose of the gospel. All the frustration, all the delays, all overshadowed the fact that it served to spread the gospel. That was his obsession, if I can use that term. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.